Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, just two verses, verses 28 and 29. Let us hear from God's word, and then we will consider this together. God's word, Hebrews 12, verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. We've been considering worship and its place in the Christian life over the last few weeks. Worship, of course, is part of everything that we do. We can say that all that we do in our lives are called to worship God. Think of Romans chapter 12. We offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is our spiritual act of worship. We just sang, in Alas, and did my Savior bleed. Lord, I give myself away. That's all that I can do. And that's, that is a, a large aspect of Christian worship. Part of everything that we do. And yet, there is a, a central importance to what we do when we gather together as God's people. When we come and we assemble uh, for uh, the sacred assembly of the church to hear the word preached, to sing together, uh, to hear from God's word, to offer our prayers. There is something there that is central to the Christian life and even central to the categories of worship. One reformer put it this way, speaking of worship, worship is the work of acknowledging the greatness of our covenant Lord. And of course, we do that in all of our life. Right? We're, we're called to acknowledge the greatness of our covenant Lord. And yet, when we come together for worship, we do that in a special way. We're acknowledging the greatness of our God. We're setting aside all of, other, all of our other concerns. We're, we're uh, devoting time to come together and to say that this God is worthy of our praise. We care what he has to say to us. And we care about ordering our lives around him. As we were saying last week... We give our best to the one who deserves it most. And we do it not just because he deserves it most. We do it not just because he is worthy of our praise. Of course, that is a a fundamental reason. But we are doing it because God is the all-satisfying one. He is the one in whom our souls alone will be satisfied. And so when we come to worship God, we are saying, not only are you worthy of praise, but we are coming to you as the deer pants for streams of living water, knowing that you are the one who gives us exactly what we need. And we've been talking about the fact that God is not only passionate about the glory of his name and advancing the glory of his name, but yet as God's glory increases, those who know him and those who love him are bound up with the goodness of that and and are satisfied by the advance of the glory of God's name. And so all of those things are what we are doing when we worship God together. All glory and honor and praise are His. We are called to submit to Him in all that we do 
And what we are doing now is a special part of that. And we also need to, to consider how, how it is that we understand this corporately as a church. We need to think about the people of God coming together and how that changes things. It's not just people coming together as individuals, but rather as the body of Christ in our corporate and our visible character. We think even of the short passage that we read tonight. Since we are receiving a kingdom, there's this corporate aspect to it. We're receiving this kingdom. Let us worship God. Let us be thankful and worship Him acceptably. This uh, corporate aspect of all that we are doing. And so we know that when we gather together from call to worship to benediction, God is present in what we are doing in a special way, present in our midst in a way that is different in quality than our normal and regular and daily lives. I found this quote this week, and I'd like to share it with you. A service of public worship is not merely a gathering of God's children with each other, but before all else, a meeting of the triune God with his people. God is present in public worship, not only by virtue of the divine omniscience, as he knows all things, but much more intimately as the faithful covenant Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And so when we are meeting with God, it's important to remember all of these things, but important to remember that we are not meeting with someone who is our equal. We're not meeting with one of our peers. It's, it's not like going and meeting for coffee with your friends. The book of Ecclesiastes says that those who are not careful in offering a sacrifice before God are fools who do not know that they are practicing evil. So we must be careful that we do not fall into that kind of error. God is holy. God is transcendent. God is more holy than we can ever imagine. And yet God is also loving. And so we have been balancing this with the words gravity and gladness, with the words reverence and joy. Joyfully reverent worship is really the picture that the scriptures give to us. God is holy. We need to be reverent before him. We need to worship him with reverence and with awe. And yet, God loves us. And we see this in the unfolding of the covenant of grace. We see this in the unfolding of the life of Jesus Christ. We see this in the giving of the promise of the gospel in the voice of the prophets. A God who is holy and infinitely righteous. A God who has wrath towards sin and who is too holy to even look upon sin, as the book of Habakkuk says. Yet this God is a loving God. A God who so loved the world that he gave his only son that we might be with him. For he did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So we're going to tie up a lot of these things tonight and be a bit more specific on the things that we do, understanding what it is that we're doing when we come together to worship God, how it points us to the gospel, why we do the things that we do, and, uh, and why we worship God with reverence and with joy. So, our ideas tonight, our main points are three. One is a must, and the last two are oughts. So the first is this. We must regulate all that we do by Scripture. We must regulate all that we do by Scripture. Secondly, we ought to shape our worship around the covenant of grace. And then finally, we ought to be intentional about worshiping God between the guideposts of gravity and gladness, of reverence and 
joy. So first, we must allow Scripture to regulate our worship, regulate what we believe, and then regulate what we do when we come together to worship God. First, the Scriptures regulate what we believe about God, what we confess about Him, what we teach about Him. In our passage tonight, it says that we are to worship God with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Thus, when we come together, we are coming together to worship that God who is a consuming fire. And, and various places in Scripture unpack that for us. One of the things that you see in Scripture is that when people are caught up into the presence of God, they are most often floored by that presence. They don't know what to do. They want to, they, they want to leave. They want to get out of that presence because they know that they're in the midst of someone who is infinitely holy. The book of Isaiah, chapter 6, a very famous passage. Prophet Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Then Isaiah's reaction. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is often what happens. When human beings come into contact with God. And we put stock in this passage because it is scripture. This is not like a book where someone claims that they had a 30 minute or a 90 minute experience in heaven. Right? This is God's word. Inerrant, given to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the voice of Isaiah. Isaiah caught up. And most scholars would say that that the one whom he sees is the pre-incarnate Christ, the one who is seated on a throne, high and lifted up, the Son through whom God will glorify himself. And so we see this is what happens when human beings are caught up into the presence of God. This passage also shows us the relationship between the holiness of God and the glory of God. Two concepts that overlap a bit for sure, but there, there is a distinction between them. One pastor put it this way, it's interesting, isn't it, that the angels don't say, holy, 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 the whole earth is full of his holiness. If he is the thrice holy God, if he is the one whose holiness is exalted in this ever ongoing worship in, 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 in heaven, then you would ask, if, it, if it's all about his holiness that is seen and that is experienced, wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it make sense that if he is holy, 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 the whole earth is then full of his holiness? But no, they say that the whole earth is full of his glory. His holiness is the fact that he is infinitely worthy. He's set apart. He's, he's different than us. And his glory, in a sense, is the knowing of that truth. That you know that God is infinitely valuable. That you know that God is, is infinite in worth. And he is the supreme being than whom nothing greater can be conceived. 
And so his holiness and his glory intersect in this way, that his holiness is, is, is internal character and worth. His glory is that which goes out to the ends of the earth, declaring that he is holy, declaring that he is supreme. And what we have seen is that God is passionate about making his holiness known. He is passionate about revealing that holiness and that infinite worth to his creation. Another passage that is like Isaiah chapter 6 is Revelation chapter 4, where we read something very similar. We read the four living creatures, each of them with six wings. They're full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they were existed and they were created. See, God is infinitely valuable, but he's also passionate about making that supremacy known, the holiness of God and the glory of God. And very simply, that is why we preach and teach the word of God, so that we put forth who it is that God truly is, a God who is infinite in value and worth, a God who is holy, holy, holy. That's also why, as a congregation, we read the law of God. The reading of the law of God jolts us back into the reality of God's holiness and our sinfulness. It's a check on us each week to remember that God is holy and that his standard of righteousness is beyond what we can ourselves achieve. It also reminds us of the importance of what we are doing as worshipers. What are we doing when we come before the living God to worship him? We are joining in his mission of making his name known to the ends of the earth. The ends of all the earth shall hear and they shall worship the Lord in fear. We read in John chapter 4, the words of our Lord He says this, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now listen to this. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is not indifferent about whether or not people worship him. God is seeking to make worshipers of his holiness and his glory. God is seeking those who would join in that mission of making his worth known throughout all of the world. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. God wants to know, he wants us to know how valuable and how glorious he is. And that's what he does in and through us. It doesn't mean that God is trying to make people worshipers of him. God is sovereign. God is the one who sovereignly works in hearts and and gives life to dead hearts and he moves and acts through the gospel. But he is a God who uses means and, and one of the means that he uses is his church, his gathered people to declare his name, to declare his glory among the nations. So, what are the things that we do in worship? What are the things that scripture regulates about 
what we do in worship. It's the opinion of most that you go to the Bible and you say, okay, obviously God wants us to worship him, and so let's just kind of go at worshiping God. Let's try to worship God with whatever way we see fit, and God will be gracious to us. God will give us a lot of grace in however we choose to worship him because at least our hearts are in the right place. That's what a lot of people think. In this way of thinking, much is left up to the imagination, as to what God wants us to do when we come together to worship him. John Calvin was a strong voice against this type of practice. He stood at the end of the church of the Middle Ages, and what he had seen was that a lot of what began to take up the time in the worship of God was left up to the imaginations and all of the creativity of the minds of men. And he was famous for saying that when we are left to our own freedom, when we're left to our own ideas, all we are left to do is go astray. He also was famous for pointing out that when God's people come together and there is, there is an intentional spirit about making sure that we only do the things that God has commanded us to do, we implicitly give the sense that it is God's authority that we are respecting as we gather. One of the things about worship is that ultimately we all are forced to leave our ultimate preferences to the side. We are forced to ask, what is it that God commands us to do as it relates to worship? One of the questions we should be asking is, what were the churches of the apostles doing when they gathered for worship. Well, we have an answer to that in the book of Acts, chapter 4. It says this, And they, that is the church, were devoting themselves continually to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. These are the things that they were doing when they came together. And we see here there are four basic elements to this worship. The ministry of the word, that is the teaching of the apostles, the sacraments, the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread, A collection for the church. Most scholars think that that's what's going on with the word koinonia or fellowship here. And then prayer. Teaching, the sacraments, a collection, and prayer. And of course, singing is involved in our prayers. Well, what we sing to the Lord is a form of our joining together in prayer to God. So from this and from other places in God's word, we see that if we are to come together and to do what it is that the Lord has commanded us to do, sticking to the revealed will of God to order our worship, it would be the reading and the preaching of God's word, the spoken and sung prayers of God's people, the sacraments, and taking collection for those in need. Now, limiting ourselves to to, to this smaller category of what we are to be doing when we come together for worship is probably not the norm today. It's probably not the norm. But if we are to be a congregation that is committed to the Word of God and letting the Word of God regulate all that we do, which we are, then these are the things that will take up our time when we come together for worship. It's not a time for the creativity of various things in our imaginations to reign Rather, we do what God has commanded us to do. And that has been the long-standing practice of the church. So, we must allow Scripture to regulate all that we do. Secondly, this. We ought to allow the covenant of grace to give shape to worship. Some of you maybe don't give much thought to the pattern that is followed in 
our worship. We're going to consider that now and how the pattern that we follow in worship is something that is actually constructed so that we might worship God rightly, out of truth, and with reverence and joy. Everyone has a liturgy, it's been said. Even if your liturgy or your order of service is four songs and a sermon, everyone has some kind of pattern that they follow. 1968, uh, our very own Christian Reformed Church gave a report on worship and they said this, Liturgy is what people do when they worship. Every church has a liturgy, whether it is with set forms or in the freedom of the moment. The question is not whether we have a liturgy, but whether we have the best possible liturgy. It's a good quote, but the question remains, what is the best possible liturgy? And I would say this, the best possible liturgy, the best possible way for us to worship God and to shape our worship services is one that recounts the message of God's grace in Christ so that we might be reminded that receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken is what gives us the gravity and gladness to worship our God rightly. When we follow the message of grace, when we follow the message of Christ, when we retrace the steps of the gospel, we are reminded that we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. And that's what it says in Hebrews chapter 12. Since you are receiving that kingdom, may you worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. So the question is, how do we get into our minds that we are receiving that kingdom? How do, we, how do we get it to stick there so that our thankfulness might blossom out of that and we might worship God acceptably so that we might go forth eager to serve God? This is exactly what's going on in this passage in Hebrews. And our hearts will overflow in love and gratitude to God if we can get that to stick into our minds, the kingdom which cannot be shaken. And it's Reformed doctrine of salvation, which you might call the doctrines of grace, and specifically the doctrine of the covenant, where most clearly and explicitly we see the gospel message exalted and magnified. As you see the utter sinfulness and the utter inability of man traced through the story of the covenant in the Bible. Where you see God making a covenant with his people. And you can even go farther back, right? You can go to the Garden of Eden where the covenant of works, the covenant of life is broken by Adam. And there's, an, there's a curse that's put over the entire world. God makes a covenant with his people. He says, do this and live. If you are obedient to me, I will bless you. If you're disobedient, I will curse you. And the people of Israel, disobedient, and they keep failing, they keep falling, they keep running away from God. So you see the promises of the new covenant come forth. Jeremiah chapter 31, what does Jeremiah say? I will write my laws on their hearts. And what we see coming forth from that is the way that God overcomes the inability of man. He will do that by the power of the Spirit, and he will do that through his righteous Son that he sends to earth. That Christ is the fulfillment of the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace is about all that has been accomplished and achieved for us. And the call upon us to have faith, to trust in Christ, and to trust all that he is, so that he might bring us to God. And so the language all throughout scriptures is about this covenant of peace that God makes with his people. Ezekiel 37, I will make a covenant of peace with them. 
and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them. I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That happens through Jesus Christ. And it's important also to, to be reminded which are reminded with our doctrines of grace, that that is not some kind of plan B. That's not God saying, well, this didn't work. I better try something new. No, God was weaving this story together in the exact way that he decreed it would come about so that the work of Christ might be exalted, so that we would not trust in ourselves, so that we would understand that it is Christ, it is the gospel, it is the God of grace to which we must cling so that we know that God, the God who does not change his mind, the God who all of his works are perfect and he never changes any of them, he gives to us this kingdom, this kingdom that cannot be shaken. So what this means is that our worship is to be covenantal. It's a covenantal meeting between God and his people. It's to be a reenacting of the covenant. It's to be a refreshing and a renewal of the covenant of grace. That's why in our services there's, there's a gospel structure to it. There's a, a gospel logic to it. We confess our sins because we're coming back to our covenant king and we're saying we have failed but we're trusting Christ. You make this covenant with us and it's forged in the bonds of the blood of Christ And it's made sure by his work. So we're admitting that we have fallen short, but we're trusting again in Christ. That's why we confess our sins. That's why we have an assurance of grace. It's a covenantal meeting between God and his people. That's why it's a sacred time when we come together and worship. Not only is it covenantal, but it is a dialogue. It's a conversation between God and his people. It would be strange, wouldn't it, if your friend were to call you over and say, hey, would you come over to my house? I'd like to spend some time with you. You say, well, sure. You drive over to your friend's house and let you in the front door, sit down in the living room, and for the next 45 minutes, you sit together in silence. Your friend doesn't say anything. That would be rather strange, wouldn't it? When God calls us to worship, he calls us to assemble together. He's doing that because he has something to say to us. God does not remain silent. God speaks to us when we worship him. So when we worship our Lord, when we worship God, there are basically two parts to it. There are the things that that are done on behalf of God, and there are things, and in those things, the people are receptive, they receive something. And then there are parts in which the people are active and they perform something to God. When we hear the word read and preached, we are receivers. That is an act that is done on behalf of God. And when God's word is preached faithfully, and when God's truth is represented, God is really and truly speaking to his people by the power of the Spirit. That's why it's so important that those who would be ministers would be trained and they would know how to open up God's word. Because it's not the minister's words, it's not the minister's ideas that are important. It's not his hobby horse of that week or what he's kind of been ruminating on. No, it's what the word of God has to say. And when we respond to God's word in thanksgiving, we are active participants. We give him an offering of praise. It's God speaking and our responding. And that's why in the worship service, those things tend to be one after the other. Something where God speaks or where God's actions are represented and then we respond 
uh, with praise. So, for instance, God calls us to worship him in his word. We respond with a hymn of adoration. God calls us to confession, and we confess our sins. So worship is to be an intimate time between God and his people. It's a, it's a vertical conversation, much more than it is a horizontal conversation. It's why we, we all face forward when we come together for worship, because it's God speaking and acting in each of our lives. We might say a couple of words just quickly also about the setting of worship. When we, when we gather together in a place like this, in this beautiful room, we're reminded of the importance of setting. Not every church has those kinds of options. Not every church has a beautiful building in which they can meet. There are many biblically faithful churches that have to meet in storefronts or in school buildings or in houses or various other places. But when a church has the means to do all of those things, we see what it is that they're emphasizing coming forth in the way that they have constructed their church and their sanctuary. When Reformed churches began building their own buildings after the Reformation, they did not leave out all of the paintings of Jesus Christ because they couldn't afford it or because they were not talented with art. They did so because they had a strong emphasis on the importance of the Second Commandment. There is no altar in our church because the Lord's Supper is not a sacrifice. It is a sacrament. The pulpit is in the middle of our sanctuary and not off to the side because it's the proclamation of the word. It's the proclamation of the gospel, which is to be central to what happens on the Lord's Day and the sacraments adjoined to it. That is the central part of what we do as Reformed Christians. Reformers emphasized this. They wanted their, their sanctuaries to be simple and yet beautiful and to leave no distractions from the preached word. The front of the sanctuary is not a place for competing loyalties. The front of the sanctuary is to be dedicated to Christ and to his glory and to his word, which he proclaims to his church. All of these things remind us that when we come together for worship, it should be shaped by the covenant of grace and it should exist for the relationship and the conversation between God and his people, not the inventions of a man's imagination. And then lastly, we ought to be intentional about worshiping God between the guideposts of reverence and joy, of gravity and gladness. This is one reason why the songs that we sing are to be filled with both of these things. So are we singing songs that are fueled by joyful reverence, biblical truth, representing who God is, and then also declaring what he has done for us in Christ? This was one of the, the main reasons why the elders felt it necessary to, to have those songbooks made so that we can introduce some of these songs that we believe are wonderful representations of reverence and joy in Christ alone. He stands in victory and since curse has lost its grip on me. When you begin to see the glory of God who acted for us in Christ, that is when you have a heart of joyful reverence as a worshiper who worships in spirit and in truth. With a lot of these things, it's been said that the church must decipher between two things, tradition and traditionalism. 
Tradition is what we want. Traditionalism is not what we want. Traditionalism is when we do things the way we've always done them because it's the way we've always done them. That is, it's the correct way to do it because it's the way that we've always done it. But if that were true, the Reformation would never have happened. Rather, our call is to tether ourselves to the Word of God. And we say, when is it or where is it in church history that we've seen people have been most faithful to the Word of God and the doctrines that are brought out therein? It's been said that traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Tradition is a rich sharing in the past. It's looking back to the best of what the history of the church brings to us. It's saying the creeds with great joy, thinking about the fact that Christians have said the same things through the centuries. It's standing on the shoulders of giants saying that we have received something that has been given to us by people that have died for the gospel message. We stand on the shoulders of giants who spent their lives opening up the word of God, some of them preaching each and every day so that the gospel message would endure. It's a rich sharing in the past, using the best of what we have, but then also looking to the future, to a God who is sovereign and a God who continues to build his church now. And we ask ourselves, how can we worship God with reverence and with joy? These things take wisdom. These t- things take wisdom. One of the things that we've felt it necessary to do, lean into the means of grace. In an age where a lot of the church is running away from these things, the means of grace, the preaching of the word, the sacraments, singing and prayers, lean into those things because it's there that we can expect the blessing of God. One of the reasons why we added a handful of uh, observances of the Lord's Supper in our evening services because it is a means of grace, because it's one of those places where we find the renewal of the covenant It's a ceremony of renewing the covenant. It's a means of grace where the Spirit of God nourishes our hearts when we eat and when we drink in faith. I should also add, John Calvin believed that the Lord's Supper should be celebrated each and every time that God's people gathered for worship. So I'm, I'm in good company there. We're not going to do that, of course, but we increased uh, the number for our good that God might sanctify us more. One of the things that we've been doing, uh, we say affirmations of faith, and that is to recount time and time and time again the wonderful truths of the gospel, to get them to stick in our minds so that we might remember that we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. We preach through entire books of the Bible so that it's not we who set the agenda, but it's God. Well, how do these books of the Bible unfold for us? How does the gospel of Luke unfold from from passage to passage and from chapter to chapter? God wanted us to look at all of those things and to open them up. And that is why we not only preach through whole books of the Bible, we read through whole books of the Bible. We are to be people that are wholly committed to God and to his word, who submit to his authority, who are eager to hear from him and to eager to respond to him in praise and adoration. So between the guideposts of gravity and gladness, we come to worship the God who is supremely and infinitely valuable, a God that you would not want to approach without some kind of care 
without being very careful, and yet a God who declares to us, this is what I've done for you. This is the kingdom I have given to you, a kingdom which cannot be shaken, and you are to respond in joy because of that. This is the God that we worship. He is the Holy One whose love for us goes beyond words. So we worship Him in reverence and in awe, from the heart, with joy inexpressible. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for your truth. We thank you for giving us so much that we might worship you. And Father, we thank you uh, that you have called us to be people who are united in the gospel by the power of the Spirit, who worship you with reverence and with joy that your name might be magnified, that your glory might increase, that others might know your holiness. We're thankful that you are passionate about the magnifying of your name, Father, and we pray that you would make us more passionate for it as well. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's respond together by singing number 179.